You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Clear the aisles, the projectionist, that's Micha. Hi, I'm here with Yitzhak Olakowski. And as we approach uh, this last week of the calendar year 2023, um, I actually wanted to talk uh, first about a film that features uh, the December 31st, January 1st change from one year to the other, the New Year's uh, Eve celebration in a way uh, that doesn't have any religious uh, connections at all. I mentioned to you off pod uh, that this aligns with a, a famous tube of revelation that in America, New Year's Day has become just a way to sort of mark some sort of aspect of um, some somewhat of renewal, but not connected at all uh, to counting the new year in, in, uh, in the Christian sense at all. And we can even, debate, even though it's a Christian holiday. Yeah, we can debate about this, you know. But, but clearly, in, in films itself that feature New Year's, it's usually about a party. It's usually about some sort of get together. And there's been so many films that use New Year's. Um, uh, in, in, in some form or another, you could probably, you know, you, you to make a collection of it. And it's very different than the way uh, the Christmas scene is used. And the Christmas scene is usually some sort of spiritual, miraculous, some sort of better side of you. Whereas the New Year's Eve part is usually some sort of tension involved. Who are you going to kiss? Who are you going to be involved with? Right? Who? Right? What's going to happen at that moment? Is this the moment for me to make my move? Um, am, are, are we lost in the crowd? Can we find each other? Um, I talked about the film Bachelor Mother, which has a beautiful uh, New Year's Eve uh, uh, scene. Uh, which, I mean, a Bachelor Mother might be considered a Christmas movie, but the New Year's Eve scene that's in it is really disconnected from any you know, sense of religious, uh, you know, uh, being moved in a religious way. Uh, it's it's more about there's a party, there's people. Who are you with? Um, and are you taking a new leaf? Uh, what's going to be uh, your resolution, so to speak, <laughs> at that time? And I think there's a film that that captures this idea and, and has as as its central um, dramatic uh, moments of what's happening during New Year's. That is the uh, the remake, actually, of a 1930 film, a 1938 film uh, called Holiday, and it was uh, directed by George Cooper. And uh, who also, I think, was an English uh, expatriate. And uh, it starred Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. Um, and it, although you're very familiar, of course, it's up with 1940s Philadelphia story, uh, where you, know, you have Grant and Hepburn, and of course, Grant and Hepburn uh, were together as well in bringing up baby Howard Hawks' screwball comedy that, of course, includes the, the leopard, I think, baby. Um, this film, in many ways, I think it's superior to both of those. Um, and Grant and Hepburn have a uh, chemistry and an adult understanding of each other, which I think really even surpasses what many people believe is like this urbane sophistication of Philadelphia story. Uh, it's based on a play by Philip Barry, uh, who w- was very popular in the 20s. Uh, I think it was in, in the late 20s that he wrote this play. And it's basically about a, a free spirit. And that's really what the play is about, is the meaning of two free spirits. Um, it's set in the background uh, when Philip Barry wrote the play, of course, it was before the, um, the stock market crash. And of course, that was that was a period in the United States where where 
increasing uh, their wealth exponentially with all the different uh, conglomerations and, 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 and America was this incredible industrial giant and people were, uh, the wealth was, was, was popping up everywhere. And part of what the Barry's play was sort of like trying to rein in this fascination with money and describing the fact that people were, were losing themselves, that although they were making money and they were brilliantly perhaps understanding how deals were supposed to be made, but what were they really becoming within themselves? A uh, character whose name is Johnny Case, uh, he is the, uh, the dramatist personae of, of, of the play, of Philip Berry's play, and of the, the film versions that were made. Um, th this version, though, is clearly superior. One of the reasons why it's superior is because it had George Cooker behind the camera. Eight years had taught the moguls and the directors and the Mabina what you can do with sound and what you need to do with the camera. That the fact that you have sound doesn't just mean now, let's put on the play. Let's take Barry's play and pretty much you know, keep the camera stationary or, and just have close-ups perhaps when the characters are mouthing the lines from the screenplay, which is basically built almost directly from what was done in the theater. By 1938, they realized the potential of film and sound film in a way that they could alter some of the original and they could use the camera and the way they were shooting things and also in terms of the production design in a way that didn't need all the verbiage that the play had. And although I didn't see the original, uh, what I have read about was that the characters were, were somewhat wooden in the original. And here you have, in this production, you have two of the most dynamic characters in terms of not only their line readings, but their whole physical persona. And that, of course, is Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn. Um, Grant actually, uh, in this film, uh, plays uh, a fellow from Baltimore. <laughs> and again, we've talked in the past how uh, American audiences were willing to dismiss the obvious still English accent that he brought uh, to uh, all of his films because they loved him so much, they embraced him so much. And I think part of the reason Cary Grant liked this film, and you can see it was his real persona in a way, was because he himself came from very modest beginnings, just like the character. And part of what the point of view of this character is, is to be shocked by the ostentations, by the wealth that he has now become connected to. On a skiing trip, he uh, uh, fell in love and had a, whirl with, a whirlwind romance with an heiress, someone who he didn't realize was so wealthy. It's only now when he comes to her address and he enters through the servants' quarters uh, that he realizes that the building that looks like a museum or a great office is really a place that holds four people, four people and a bevy of servants and a gigantic uh, type of uh, mansion that takes up a whole city block in Manhattan. And Johnny is astounded by it. And what he realizes is that there's an assault on his values. Because although he is, in a certain sense, a climber, He's someone who has pulled himself up from his bootstraps, who's been working since he's eight years old, whose father was a green grocer or something like that in, in Baltimore. And he's now already making his way 
into uh, the business world, he still retains in his heart a sense of the freedom of expression. He uh, Grant uses, I don't think this was the original play, he does a number of his acrobatic moves. Grant started off in England as a juggler and as an acrobat. And he does a number of acrobatic moves here in this, in, 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 in this, in this film supposedly that he know by tumbling and by flipping himself over he's able to think better it's a sort of like a coping device and the film uses it a number of times in fact in ways to sort of like emphasize various in fact every tumble is probably significant in terms of where the character is going um uh, aiding him uh is a is a couple uh that he is very close with um they're played by you know, Edward Everett Horton, who um, plays Professor Potter, uh, along with his wife, Jean Dixon, who plays uh, Susan Potter. And they are um, what we would call today smart, middle-class intellectuals who have their heads on straight and have a great sense of humor. Um, as you know, Yitzhak, Edward Everett Horton had a very long career. I, of course, encountered him originally and you know where I encountered him originally in Bullwinkle. You know, he had his um, fractured fairy tales, which were that's, that's where I encountered him first, also. <laughs> yes, and 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 he was great. I don't think you know he narrated them perfectly, and it seems, although Jay Ward, of course, was was the brains behind Bullwinkle, it seems like Edward Everett Horton wasn't just the talent, the voice talent, um, the the type of uh, flip. Flipping the script of all these fairy tales seemed to be something that Edward Horton uh, took some delight in. I don't think he was just given cue cards or the script to read. Um, again, I, I, Bo Winkle aficionados can talk about how much Edward Horton actually contributed. But as I mentioned last week with George Sanders, uh, he was a character actor whose personality bled into so much of, of what of the roles he was uh, that he played, and he of course I think had a career even in the silence. I think it, and it went all the way from the definitely the late twenties. I think all the way uh, into the television era. So you know he you know I don't know how many films you can look up and see, but he 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 is was was many of the Astaire Rogers uh, team ups, and always playing somewhat of you know not a complete foolish comic relief. But some sort of um, you know character that um, you definitely would get a chortle from. You could sometimes laugh at and sometimes laugh with. Um, I think he was gay. I think it's pretty obvious that he was a, a gay man, um, and, and 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 he had a real lively career. He uh, and, and in this film, he sort of represents uh, a conscious of 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 Johnny's to make sure that Johnny doesn't get so it's really interesting how hollywood was able to sort of you know dress up the effeminate aspects of edward ever horton and he was able to really have a very a, a, a great career where most people probably knew he was gay right <laughs> so anyway um he is he he he's, he does a fine job in this film but really the the standout character is of course Hepburn. Hepburn was interesting. Uh, she actually was an understudy uh, for the original stage play. 
um, uh, in this in this role uh, that she plays. Um, you know, she plays um, uh, Linda, Linda Seaton, and she has a number of beautiful soliloquies where she actually speaks the spirit of nonconformity and, um, and and how important that is, and how important it is to discover who you are, that you can have a, a home. And this is part of the reason why I think um, the producers thought it would play well as a screwball comedy, um, even for the masses who only had a dime or so to spend a week on going to a movie, because it sort of exposed some, the emptiness of wealth. But I think the reason why it wasn't such a box office hit was because people didn't understand Johnny, Cary Grant's character's desire, which was to basically marry this the other sister, who I, you know, I would say, you know, played by uh, Doris Nolan, uh, because she sort of turns from being sort of sweet and caring uh, to someone who really is very much like her father, who, who really is very conventional. And although she enjoys the romance of being involved with this incredibly handsome person, she expects that person uh, to pretty much turn into a conventional businessman. And just with a lighter side, as opposed to what Cary Grant wants, that what Johnny wants, which is to earn enough money to then retire and then figure out what their life is about. Not to wait till you're old. In other words, the normal uh, trajectory is, you know, you work and you work and you hope you make enough money. Then you retire and then you're too old to enjoy life. What he wanted to do was to actually invest himself and then take a holiday not the New Year's Eve, but New Year's Eve is very much an important symbol of, okay, now that's over, what are you going to do? And what he wanted to do was actually to to discover, based on the wealth, because unfortunately the world keeps on pushing us down, the, the reality of gas and mortgage, the reality of schar chinuch, as we would say uh, among ourselves, uh, surrounds us in a way that we almost don't have time for anything. I think we can understand almost in a very modern way what he's looking for. He's looking, yes, he's looking for using his mind, a quick mind to make money in this area, but then to retreat completely from it and then spend a number of years together with his soulmate figuring out what it is that human beings should do, what it is you as a human being should do, discovering various aspects of spirituality, all of that type of seeking, the Jack Kerouac type of stuff, oh, I'm just going to go on the road and find out who I am, practically can only be done if you have a bank, something that's bankrolling you. <laughs> Otherwise, you know, you, you end up in a world of danger, especially in the 1930s. So, you know, this was an idea that was very novel. Uh, this was, and, and, and it didn't play so well for depression audiences. That somebody should just, you know, you know, want, want to make money and then, okay, now I'm going to become a, now I'm just going to become a bum. Um, they thought it was somewhat of a slap in the face, but I think the film has aged pretty well. Um, and uh, I think the the messages of the film uh, are are still very important. Lou Ayers is in the film as well, and of course he's he's not Doctor Kildare in this film, but he has a great role as the as sort of like the old the drunken son who uh, resents his dad. Lou Ayers' uh, character, this drunken 
uh, truth teller is very similar to uh, the character that uh, that Van Heflin played in his Oscar-winning performance in Johnny Eager as Jeff Hartnett. But that that was a role that Hollywood enjoyed having a fellow who doesn't seem to be doing much, but is able through drink and the way the inhibitions are loosened to drink to be able to say truths. Like, for example, in this film, one of the great truths he says is, is that although um, uh, Catherine Hepburn plays supposedly the, <laughs> the spinster sister who doesn't have the looks of her younger sister and isn't as popular and seems to be strange and idiosyncratic, he says to her, you're 10 times the person uh, the other sister is and you're and you're more and you're more beautiful as well and even though in terms of classic beauty she wasn't but in terms of the vibrancy the dynamism that Hepburn brought um you know and that was like a, a great truth that her, her brother is able to sell um the uh, like i said so it, it's it's in a way it sort of takes the secular aspect of what new year's eve has become and what New Year's has become, because there's, and I'll just end with this, there's a, a debate between what Kate, you know, Kate wants to announce the engagement to her sister, uh, to Johnny, in the playroom, in a little room that is like the smallest room in the house, where little artifacts from their youth are still there, Punch and Judy uh, set up uh, a couple of, a number of interesting stuffed animals. That's where she wants the party to be, intimate, only the, the, the closest friends. Whereas uh, her father and her sister want to throw the most lavish New Year's Eve party uh, in their magnificent um, mansion uh, with people uh, running through all the different rooms and, and, and a gala, gala event that really loses all sense of of, of, of any personal way to somehow change yourself, as opposed to we're, we're together in this room of memory, this room where we can dedicate a room that has a, a picture of their, their mother who's passed away. Um, and, and here, you know, they, they, they end up, of course, announcing it uh, at New Year's, uh, at, at the moment of New Year's in this, uh, on this incredible staircase. I think the film was nominated for its incredible sets, because they are really, you know, they really uh, went out of their way uh, to be able to uh, to indicate the opulence. The you really believe you are inside uh, one of these incredible mansions. So it is a film, I think, that uh, it goes down easy, and I think it's really one of the films that uh, allowed Cary Grant to to feel very comfortable. Hollywood wasn't sure what to do with Cary Grant. Um, they knew he was handsome. They knew he, he was very physical. Um, this was a film, I think, that that he really was pushing towards that American icon that he later that he later became. So that's that's speaking about uh, English-born individuals who became the quintessential American. I think probably Cary Grant might be uh, <laughs> Exhibit A. Would have to be Leslie Towns Hope, otherwise known as Bob. Bob was born in England, like Cary Grant, to a, a middle-class family or, or towards the, the poor side. Um, and his family emigrated when he was five years old, eventually, I think, settling somewhere near Cleveland. And, you know, Hope had a connection. As you know, he had spoke 
to Cleveland his whole life. I think there was a time that he was a owner of the Cleveland Indians, um, if not the complete owner. Um, and, and just like Cary Grant, he, he had to really earn his stripes. Uh, unlike Cary Grant, he wasn't blessed with the uh, the Adonis looks, uh, and he had to. But he, you know, he he worked as a, uh, a, a matrician. Uh, he cut trees. Um, he was famously a boxer, as you know. He was, uh, and he, I think he won a couple of rounds too, uh, despite uh, his uh, film persona as a complete total goofball uh, and a coward. He actually, you know, uh, uh, you know he was actually able to. Um, <laughs> to justify himself as, as some of an athlete. He also uh, um, was part of an act when he was growing up where uh, he was pretty a, much of an accomplished dancer. And you can see that in a number of the 54 films that he starred in uh, where he can do a pretty much more than just a little soft shoe. Um, in a film that I was talking to you about off pod, um, The Seven Little Foys, uh, he engages in a, a tap dancing off with, with Cagney. Uh, and that's a, a wonderful classic scene. You can get it on YouTube and see it uh, of, of Hope versus Cagney in a, in a tap dance standoff. Um, but Hope obviously was uh, had used his physical gifts, uh, not a, like a tumbler uh, like Cary Grant, but definitely a lot of physical comedy. Um, I think especially during the glory years uh, when Hope uh, rose in the mid and late 1940s to become really one of the top three box office stars in in the United States. I think that it, that it, that I think that lasted up until 1951 or 1952, um, and then he sort of I think as you mentioned to me off pod, he sort of started riding on his laurels a little bit. But during that incredibly creative period from I guess 1942 or 43 up until 1952. Hope was one of the most bankable, recognizable comedic stars in Hollywood. Um, now, he did make seven films with uh, Crosby. Um, Crosby, by the way, was had cameos in uh, many of his other, other films when they were Hope solo ventures. But as you know, MGM uh, and Paramount and, and Fox were always looking to create a comedy team. Um, the film I want to recommend, I just happened to come across it, uh, as we say in Hebrew, Benikra, <laughs> uh, uh, when it was sort of suggested to me by Prime Video, was the 1944 vehicle called The, Pi- the Princess and the Pirate. Um, Hope is neither princess or pirate in this film, although uh, towards the end of the film, he does do a little bit of a uh, pirate act, which is very funny considering that he's he's mimicking uh, the uh, the sort of bluebeard Captain Hook pirate in the beginning, played by Victor McLaughlin. Um, and the Hope does a, a a pretty good job imitating uh, McLaughlin's uh, uh, gesticulations and other uh, manic uh, pirate-like sayings which is quite funny. The film is obviously, and we've talked about this often, uh, Hope made a career of bursting the fourth wall and constantly talking to the audience. Um, And I can tell you, I don't get tired of it. Um, I I, I think Hope at his best can be seen even 80 years later. 
and and be enjoyed. Um, again, it's a, it's a completely different comic persona than Benny or Fred Allen. Uh, it's it's basically the wiseacre. Um, uh, he, he, many people believe he was actually the father of what we call today the stand-up comedian. Um, and of course, this was something he did on his on the radio and on television, but. He, he was sort of sort of like the stand-up comic, even during the film, where he would act almost like a Greek chorus, like commenting on, can you believe this is what's going on? Can you believe they paid me to do this? I'm not making another film for Goldwyn. I mean, he, it, it, and you bought into it. it. You didn't mind that he was breaking that fourth wall. You didn't mind, like, even in uh, all the road pictures or any of the pictures he was in, uh, or, or, or some of the pictures where, that were based on the Old West, where he would consistently make all these anachronistic uh, comments. Um, and you didn't mind that. Um, that's what Hope was about. Um, in, in this film, uh, Virginia Mayo uh, plays uh, his, uh, uh, his love interest uh, and also has uh, a great all-star supporting cast. Um, besides Victor McLaughlin, uh, who, you know, seeming, seemingly having a lot of fun playing this uh, pirate with his hook. You also have two Walters. And I would say these two Walters are two of the greatest um, supporting actors. There's Walter Brennan and Walter Slezak. Um, now, Walter Brennan, you know, won two Academy Awards as supporting actor. Um, and in this film, he plays a different type of character altogether. In the late 50s and early 60s, uh, Brennan uh, played like a, a cadre old goat who was, had a mean, ornery streak to him. Uh, he was in a number of Westerns where he was a menacing figure, uh, very, most famously in How the West Was Won. Um, of course, he was uh, Grandpa Amos on, on The Real McCoys on television. But in this film, it's, he plays a total comic loon. Like he's, he's, he's called Featherhead, and he is a, a fellow that's on the pirate ship who everyone considers uh, the tattoo expert who isn't good for much else. Um, and Brennan, again, it, it, the, the film is, is, is directed by David Butler, who I highlighted last We highlighted Butler's film, It's a Great Field, which I said was sort of like a, uh, a television 60s uh, comedic, although it was done in the late 40s. This film that Butler did as well, um, you know, it has a little more, it moves with a little more classic comedic maturity if that makes any sense um you know there's there's wonderful uh maybe the stock footage but you have you know a, a, a lot of good pirate uh <laughs> pirate scenes of the pirates attacking one boat attacking the other um it, it isn't so obvious the uh you know the the, the, the blue screen behind them um and you know in general there's also uh, Slezak plays it straight the whole way, and he is the ultimate corrupt official, um, despite the fact he's supposed to be connected to England, but he has this uh, foreign accent. Um, there's situations where uh, Hope is in drag playing a gypsy woman. Um, there's a number of, of gay sort of references uh, that come up, and... Uh, uh, it, it, which is typical of its time, but it, it's really nothing that anybody should find objectionable. 
Uh, it, it goes down very easy. Is there any message in this film? Okay, so he plays an actor that has, has kept all his reviews uh, that he played in Leningrad. Uh, he says in, Le- you know, in Leningrad, he, um, he, they, he, he utters what the Russian reviewer said. And she asks him, what does that mean? And he says, well, it means I'm a shomeo. <laughs> um, so uh, there's, there's a number of, of, of references to other films uh, and other actors. Um, Democrats, Republicans also come in. So again, it's really, in a way, um, a, a interesting uh, entry into the more than 50 films uh, that, that Hope made. I think that both of us agree that 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 was the the glory period of Hope was you know that period from the early like the early to mid 40s to the beginning of the 1950s. Um, the Hope of the 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, Despite all the, the trips that he made to Vietnam and uh, throughout uh, wherever the troops were stationed um, and the television specials that he did, um, all that was really like banking its hook on, on, on what he had done. You know, he, you know, his theme song, which was Thanks for the Memory, Thanks for the Memory or Thanks for the Memories, really sort of indicates that, that he was really the old guy. You know, uh, that uh, he represents old humor, nostalgia. And, you know, although God really graced him with incredible age, I mean, he, he was, you know, he, he wasn't really that, although he had a number of bouts of illness in his mid and late 90s, he lived relatively good health till he was past 100 years old. And um, that's quite incredible. Uh, you know, he was still making some public appearances, receiving some awards. I think one of his best lines was, of course, he was the, uh, he hosted the Oscars, I think, 19 years in a row. Um, and I think that one of his best lines was in 1968, where he said, oh, well, tonight we're giving out the Oscars, or it's called in my house, Passover. Um, because he, if part of the joke was is that he was always passed over, that there was no way he was ever going to win an Oscar. But uh, because usually the Oscars, by the way, did uh, usually were televised very close to pace. Something a little bit um, untoward of the films he made in the 1960s with people like Elkie Summer and others uh, where, you know, they played off of him. And somehow they could somehow be in love with this guy that was at that time, you know, in his mid 60s and. You know, or in the seven, like, you know, as he's in, his, in his last feature film, he was already in his seventies. So there was something about the fact that Hope, I don't think, understood how to age. I don't think he got it. I don't think um, you know, he was he, he was of a certain ty- type, and he thought that maybe you know through the magic of of movies and stunt doubles and trick camera work photography. He could still play, you know, uh, Sorrowful Jones or Sylvester uh, Crosby, which is his name in this film. Uh, he could still do that type of stuff, you know, as he aged. I think, you know, you know I think that's part of the reason why, you know, he couldn't really make films. You know, it's different than I think than other comedic actors. Um, well, you know, obviously Robin Williams seemed to have been able to um, to bridge that chasm. Uh, by you know 
being involved in serious films like he was and seemingly being able to allow himself you know to perhaps recede somewhat and not be so manic but again you know when he when i think you know his suicide sort of indicates that 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 robin um, unfortunately wasn't able really to tone up to that it's talk about discovering what you're about and what your life purpose is. Part of it is knowing you know, how to bow out. Part of it is knowing how to, you know, what you can still do. Um, I think when you're a star, especially like Hope was, it's hard to just, okay, I'm just going to take some bit parts uh, from this point on. Um, you know, I mentioned to you, Yitzchak, that uh, I read when I was doing some research about Hope that Goldwyn uh, actually was upset that he didn't have someone of that sort of comedic talent that he could actually build a film around. And he went to someone who had, who was making a big splash on the New York stage, uh, Danny Kay, uh, one of the really most talented uh, total package uh, actors. And uh, he then, when Hope refused to to work for MGM, Danny Kaye became uh, an MGM star uh, in a number of films, some of them that we've talked about on this program. Um, Kaye, I think, knew how to get old. Kaye realized he couldn't do the type of stuff he did in the 40s and 50s. Uh, but even the Danny Kaye show, which was a uh, uh, an Emmy Award television show in the 1960s, he, he did enough of his old stuff especially his linguistic talents. And he was able to feature a lot of young talent. Uh, and, and unlike Bob Hope, that, okay, I'm going to do a, a special and I'm going to have all the All-Americans come on or, or, or all the beauty pageant people are going to come or, or some golfer. You know, I think Danny Kaye uh, recognized that you passed the torch on uh, to the next generation. And I think in that sense, you know, uh, Goldwyn got it right. I think that's really part of you know, what one has to do in life. It's going to be, you surprise me about what you want to talk about because it doesn't seem to be uh, the type of film that uh, that you would recommend, but it's really a film that, um, uh, based on uh, a, a, one of the great uh, spy novels of the 1920s, and it, which is The 39 Steps, right? Yes, uh, since, you, since you were talking about... Uh... British expatriates who uh, settled in America. I figured I would speak about one of your favorites, Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, before he came to America, when he was still in Britain, uh, he didn't do the remake. Unlike the the one that he made the year before, this is the Thirty Nine Steps from nineteen thirty five. In thirty four, he made The Man Who Knew Too Much, which he himself remade in the fifties. Jimmy Stewart uh, and Doris Day, of course. Yes. And the the original was with uh, Peter Mm Lorre, one of Peter Lorre's first movies. Uh, I think his first English. I think uh, it might have been. I think it might have been. Um, uh, But then the the next year he made the 39 steps. He had a bigger budget for that. Uh, When it was remade in the fifties, that wasn't Hitchcock. It was someone else who who remade it. Right. And it was definitely an inferior film as well. Um, only Hitch can remake himself. Right. Uh, yeah. But yeah. So, did you enjoy uh, the Thirty Nine Steps? It has, of course, uh, it has sort of like a. It's all filmed in Britain, but it has sort of like an American character, Robert Donet, who's uh, 
He plays a Canadian. He plays a Canadian character. Yeah, he's a Canadian character, yeah. And and Madeline Caro, I think, is the is his love interest in it. Yeah, and he's he's watching a uh, a, a Mr. Memory show. Uh, this is movie. It's it's done in an English dance hall, like a vaudeville yeah. type of uh, scene. Mm-hmm. And then the a spy, uh, Animal Smith, takes her away, takes him away, and there's shots fired, and they wind up getting uh, handcuffed to each other. It's really a, an exciting, exciting movie all the way through. So that's kind of yeah. I, I look part of what Hitch did. You know, he had a formula of you know a, a character who is basically innocent but maybe needs to learn something, you know? Um, Because there's there's a growth arc. It isn't just, oh, I'm completely innocent and now I have, I'm now accused and now I'm on the run and I seem to be connected to something which I didn't want to be connected to. And now I find myself uh, having to solve this mystery or find out what this, the the spy ring is about. Um, And Hitch did this, of course, with, uh, he did this with Saboteur, with Robert Cummings, and most famously, of course, with Cary Grant in North by Northwest. And it's very, it's a, the, the film is very similar, that you have a character who falls into this, uh, this, this spy ring, or that, that he's, and, and then he ends up, of course, being um, hunted himself. And he seems to be the one that, that you know, is, is in trouble. And he has to, for saving himself, he needs to discover what the, th- the idea of the 39 steps is and what it really is about. Um, the, um, and, you know, it has a number, it's, I guess, of some of those hitches, a signature camera moves uh, that he later perfected when he, you know, in, in, in his years, when, when he came to Hollywood, the, the, those glory years from Rebecca yeah, on. You know, it was interesting, you know, this, uh, obviously he started, Hitchcock started already in the silent era, but, you know, you have a lot of his tropes being used, things that, that he would use later, you know, in, in the middle of the movie, the main character gets shot, which, you know, a lot of people compare to, uh, you know, Jennifer Lee getting uh, killed uh, rather early in, in Psycho, but here he didn't get killed. It was, you know, it was, he actually had a hymn book in his pocket that protects him from the. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. He, I, I, no. So what, what what brought you to 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 you know to to watch it? I mean, you, you know, it's not it's not schlock from the uh, from the forties or fifties. It's not a hard film. Is it just because it was it was around in the public domain? You figured, yeah, was, let's check it out. Back back when it was in the public domain, that's when I that's when I watched a lot of those. Uh, I think it's now just, technically it's not in the public domain anymore. But it, there was a there was a court case sometime in the nineties that decided that foreign films uh, were were able to be protected, and before that took place. Uh, that's that's why I wound up watching, and I was very impressed by it. I think I even had a a magnet on my Frigidaire for a while with the poster on it. I don't think it's in my mother's house. Yeah. Again, I, I think what, 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 what if somebody's interested in that or in that era, that you know, period of Hitch's um, early talkies, um, you also, of course, have um, 
Sabotage, which right. is which is Oscar Hamolka, which is you know, one of the great Hitchcock villains uh, in terms of someone being tortured. Uh, and, and why is he doing what is he doing? Um, and I think the other piece that probably goes is worth seeing once you're seeing that is, of course, the lady vanishes. Right. And all, all of these were in a set of VHS tapes that I had at one point. Uh, I think those those uh, those five, four or five movies were were all in one set. Right. And again, you know, I, I think the you know the the one of the beauties of Hitchcock's films, which you know I, I think you can see in uh, in Holiday as well, is that the supporting characters are very wonderfully drawn and defined you know hitch was you know he he used to say that actors are like cattle but he knew which cattle to choose he he understood that that the leads need to have interesting um people that are part of the program there needs to be even the ones that the main dialogue doesn't center around um should be amusing should be interesting um I mean, this is a very entertaining movie. The whole the whole way through, it's it has a good pace. It doesn't drag at all. It doesn't. Uh... Yeah, well, Hitch, Hitch. Uh, yeah. Again, it was only really in his later films in the '60s where you have scenes that seem to be weighted down. Um, you know, I think even Rebecca, which was his first American film, you know, it, it, it moves at, at, a, at a, almost like a breakneck pace. Um, suspicion, uh, which is again one of the greater uses of Cary Grant, ended on this form, of course, Notorious, which has uh, Grant and Bergman in it, and probably one of the most <laughs> like, really important um, explorations uh, and discovery of what relationships uh, are built on, and, and condemnation of of real politics, and, and again. Hitchcock was able, I think, with uh, using um, entertaining methods, was able to, I think, make a number of, of serious points. Almost, you know, every film uh, rings that bell. Mr. and Mrs. Smith, a little bit less. Um, but I think even even the, the minor Hitchcock stuff is is definitely worth uh, it's worth a gander. But I'm impressed with stuff that you. That you chose I, mean, that. This, I think this is one of his major works. Certainly, probably, I guess it, it, you know. I I think it's the best of the British ones. Even though I I also like the Man Who Knew Too Much, but this one, I think it was the best movie made in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think again. I think it's sort of like I I agree with you. It's exciting, um, and I think it has a, a you know, again Robert Donat. No, no. I, again, his character. You know, I think he he might be the weakest link. <laughs> in the yeah. film, you know, in or, terms Orson, Orson Welles is considered to be a, a masterpiece. He was very impressed with it. He really, uh, I mean, yeah. it's it, it's it, it's it it is the movie that that you know spawned every other action movie. Everything that, else, no, I, I agree. The idea of, but, but I think part of what it makes you think about is is you know when that is when things happen to us as we allow a character to sort of represent us, um, you know, to take us along for that ride. You know, the ride is meant to 
bring to enlightenment of some sort. And I think to, in a way, address itself to some vacuousness of the character. You know, the character changes through the trauma of the experience and for the better. And I think the film needs to do that. It isn't just a sigh of relief that, you know, the train didn't hit you and someone came and undid the ropes before you died. There's something about the fact that the character discovers within themselves a certain strength. Um, and the man who knew too much, especially in the remake, where you have, you know, the Jimmy Stewart character, um, who really has to find within himself uh, a, a certain inner strength uh, to be able to to get out of this, which is a situation where his child is kidnapped and uh, you know, he cannot uh, do anything. And uh, you know, I think that that is, in a way, not just the excitement. I think you are bound to a character and you leave the film somehow with the same seeds of growth that the character has. I think, as I've said often in our conversations here, a film that allows you to not just escape from your reality, but to give you coping mechanisms or a method of how to deal with things that are happening in your own life. These are the type of films I think it's love that we do this program for, <laughs> that we know everything because things have been going well. It's really only tribulations uh, and difficulty that allow us uh, to, to grow and become, and you know, this, of course, is something as rabbis we we, we counsel our, our our congregants consistently, and with our own family, our own children. It's great when films can do that. But I agree with you. I think you know. Uh, I guess I'll be the guy who says, yeah. But sometimes you just need something totally stupid, and something that you know, <laughs> which is like a throwaway. In that sense, I would say, you know, uh, you can choose some of the hope. Talk about hope in the Oscars. Yitzchok uh, and how the Oscars are you know, a popularity contest. Clearly, there was something about uh, you know hitched and rubbed Zanuck and many of the other producers the wrong way. I mean, here's somebody who whose films are magnificent, nominated five times, and he never snagged an Oscar for for best director. I think Ford got it twice. I'm not mistaken, um, and, and Hitch never won. Sort of, he's sort of the person who invented uh, you know, how modern American films. You know, <laughs> I, I, I was I was looking through. Someone asked, you know, how many uh, best pictures do you really like uh, in the history, and I was looking through the list of all the best pictures. And I think I've only seen Night is how to grow old. I think Hitch knew how to do that as well. I mean, Hitch was very vain, and you know, he was in a way embarrassed of his rotund appearance um, and you know, he actually wanted uh, as it's been documented he wanted many of his blonde beautiful leading ladies to somehow come on to him to give him this you know the high that he wanted um, but you know he, he was at least Klappi Chutz uh, Hitch you know banked on his persona more than almost than any other director and he was able really to produce um, a, a series that is a classic of, of vintage TV. 
And I'm not oh, talking. I'm not. I'm not talking about the the hour episodes. Those are much too long. But the half hour episodes, although you know he only directed you know ten or twelve of them, or maybe even less. Um, he added in his intros and his outros, you know, such a wonderful glib um, sense of British humor. Uh, and I mean, and, when the, when those are on. Uh... When those are on uh, Nick at Night, when I was a kid, all, all I cared about seeing was his was his introductions. I didn't I didn't really care about ever seeing the the episode itself. And, and sometimes he himself, you know, sort of dismissed the significance of the of the episode. Um, and and like Dragnet, he would sometimes talk about what happened at the end or whatever happened to that character after the big reveal. Um, but you can tell that you know Hitch uh, enjoyed it. Um, you know, he knew how to, uh, in a way, promote himself as this old guy who enjoyed macabre things. Um, you know, you had the Alfred Hitchcock magazine. Uh, that was a place that, you know, again, it's obviously it was a moneymaker for him because he could put his name to it. And uh, but it, it was it all added to uh, the the aura that surrounded him. And I think, you know, in that way. You know he um, uh, he he aged uh, you know in a sense gracefully um, and uh, you know I talked about you know Cary Grant you know putting the spurs up you know when he realized he couldn't really you know handle uh, being you know, handle a film and being the star of a film um, so talking about the three I guess we, I guess I guess the unifying theme. Uh, is the three expatriates that we're talking about here, you know, Hope, Hitchcock, and, and Leach, <laughs> otherwise known as Gary Grant. Well, that's it, my friends. So we'll catch you again. Uh, hope all your resolutions, if you do make them, uh, are uh, for only the most positive things. Um, take care, Yitzchak. Be well, everyone. Right, um, take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.